if you look at um, diversification, how it's pumped out to you in the media, you know, it's something like a 60-40 bond stock portfolio, maybe some real estate, maybe some hedge funds, maybe some uh, venture capital, whatever else. I would argue that a lot of that stuff is positively correlated, especially in a crash, or has a higher correlation than what you might be led to believe. So the reason that I do what I do is because it is non-correlated to each other or low correlation and also to the marketplace. So these things really have nothing to do with each other. So it is a way for me to selfishly smooth out my P&L and to make more money in any given time. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary investors from around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Jason Buck, to host a sequence of in-depth conversations on the topic of volatility. In today's world, the concept of volatility has moved to the top of the agenda of many investors as they try to analyze and understand the riskiness of their portfolios. With ever-increasing uncertainty around the globe, knowing if you are essentially long or short volatility in your portfolio can mean the difference between ruin or survival when the next crisis emerge. The aim of these conversations is to try and understand the experiences that have influenced these highly specialized investors and the processes they follow to harness their returns in order to make all of us better informed investors. And with that, please welcome Jason Buck. Thank you, Niels, for the introduction. My special guest today is Noel Smith of Convex Asset Management. We're going to talk about all different flavors of trading volatility from dispersion to bond vol into why you'd possibly want to use ensemble approaches. Noel, I appreciate you being on. I'm going to start with an easy, yet probably the most difficult question. Why, in your personal opinion, should someone add volatility strategies to their portfolio? I trade volatility simply because once you have a baseline understanding of what you're doing, I think it's the easiest. Moreover, I think volatility is one of the few things that has some kind of a predictive nature to it. If you look at, say, for instance, a jobs number or a CPI, all of these numbers are in arrears or even the contemporary marketplace is doing some kind of a prediction based on future earnings or something like that, but it is still looking at a lot of past data. Whereas what volatility does is it gives you some kind of a prediction cone around probable events. You know, the S&P can go up to here and down to here, probably within a certain standard deviation over time. So the reason as to why look at volatility, because it's different and it also looks into the future. And information can be had from it. And also, one of the things that a lot of people don't consider is the information you can glean from volatility and its participants, the the trading flow specifically, can be used to your advantage. Great. And we'll get into flows in a second. But I wonder, you know, when you you say that, it always kind of surprises me because we've all read our Mandelbrot, right? And the volatility is either mean reverting or it's clustering. And we can have some violent phase shifts. So do you think like vols predictable in a relatively benign environment, but that we can always, there's always a chance of getting our face ripped off? Is that a fair assessment? Totally fair. Yes. I try to, I don't want to nitpick, but it's mode reverting, yeah. right? So yes. if we go back down to where it is most often, you can usually say that if I want to sell volatility when it's, you know, three standard deviations from its mode, that's a better trade than selling it when it's at its mode. So is that a better trade than buying Apple at, you know, 150 versus 250 versus, you know, 100? You know, the Apple thing to me is way more arbitrary. 
And because of the mood reverting nature of volatility, I find it to be a more, a bet with higher edge. And you have a background as a pit trader in Chicago, and then also a prop trader as well. Now, if I think just oversimplification of a prop trader, right, you run really tight stops, but as soon as the, the profit starts to expand, it's like house money and you can let your profits really run. Is that a fair assessment of kind of a prop trading background? And how do you think you apply that to then volatility strategies in general? My experience as a prop trader was with my own money. So it, it was not like that. Uh, I didn't have somebody else telling me I couldn't lose more than 1% or I'm fired. So my experience was maybe a little bit different than some other people. We started out, we were backed by Stafford. My partner sp- spun out of Susquehanna. And we decided to start our own firm in 1996. And all traders for the most part at that point were on the floor or some kind of combination hybrid of desk and floor working in in concert together. So when we were making markets and taking markets, it was for our own account, for our own benefit. And we didn't have any investors. Well, I've never really had investors until pretty recently. And then I think about going back to the the pit trading days and thinking about long volatility or or volatility or long volatility biases, like guys literally got carried out. Did that make any sort of indelible impression on you or are you just worried about just managing your risk in a more discretionary way? God, the stories are innumerable. <laughs> Floor stories are hilarious. There's just so much goofing around and buffoonery in general. But there are guys that drive around in the fanciest cars and have the biggest houses selling nothing but puts, and then one day they're just gone. They're just ruined. And then there's also guys that try to constantly scalp gamma by being long volatility or some variant thereof, and they can just never make money. And it's just a difficult thing to do. And eventually what you kind of come to is that there is no perfect trade. There is no thing that works all of the time. And that's kind of how we backed into what we're doing now, which is there's a time and a place for everything. You know, is it better to sell sunglasses or is it better to sell mittens? I don't know. Is it winter or is it summer? And it, it really does have, you have to have that ability to be tactical and look at idiosyncratic events and make some kind of a judgment. And your algorithms will never perfectly be trained because the data set is never exactly the same all the time. It constantly changes. So we're going to get into that. So you use an ensemble approach. You have five different strategies that you're trading in the vol space. Why use ensembles? It's what I think of as diversification. If you look at um, diversification, for how it's you know, pumped out to you in the media, you know, it's something like a 60-40 bond stock portfolio, maybe some real estate, maybe some hedge funds, maybe some uh, venture capital, whatever else. I would argue that a lot of that stuff is positively correlated, especially in a crash, or has a higher correlation than what, than what you might be led to believe. So the reason that I do what I do is because it is non-correlated to each other, or low correlation, and also to the marketplace. So these things really have nothing to do with each other. So it is a way for me to selfishly smooth out my P&L and to make more money in any given time. Again, if I'm a sunglass salesman, but it's winter time, what do I do? Well, maybe I'll look into the mitten business because um, that may be a better business for the wintertime. So then that kind of just gets exp- expanded throughout the other strategies. The other strategies complement each other and really have, and or have nothing to do with each other. So there's a time and a place for all of them. As, as you know, somebody that believes in ensembles is a man after my own heart. So we'll, and we'll get into the actual individual strategies. But I'm curious about how you, how you, like as you alluded to, some of these strategies come in and out of fashion depending on the global macro environment we're in. But how do you like attenuate the proportion between the strategies? I mean, how much of a flux or or flexibility is there? And do you not want to take a tra- strategy completely off because that you could have a target-rich environment coming right around the corner? Like, how do you think about allocating to each of the strategies uh, based what's going on like in today's markets? Good question. 
So you know, our business is the Venn diagram intersection of an art and science, right? Uh, like people, people would like to think that it's mostly science. If it was mostly science, then some guy running an algorithm would take all of the money. They would just simply have this giant data set. They would apply an algorithm to it and they would make trillions of dollars. And since that hasn't happened yet, common sense would, would lead, you to, lead you to believe that there is more to this. And that's to the root of your question. How do you know when to allocate and how much to allocate? That part is a little bit more difficult. We have algorithms that guide a lot of our decisions, but we also have trader acumen, judgment, and personal relationships that help guide some of the other ones. You know, what algorithm would have told you to buy AMC or GameStop? Probably none. Um, you could say, well, okay, well, there's a big short squeeze coming up and et cetera, and there's, the, there's your rationale. But, you know, if you had an algorithm that said that bonds were going to go nuts in the pandemic, and then they went reverse nuts, and then they went back nuts again, and the volatility exploded, there's no data set to prepare you for that. There's no data set that you're going to train your algos with. So you have to be able to just kind of step away and look at what's going on and apply some judgment, some common sense. And I guess trader judgment is the most accurate thing, which is the human version of an algorithm, right? What is wisdom? What is judgment? It is the iteration of time times the amount of things that have happened to you. And that's where, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years and I am allowed and I do apply some judgment. I wonder how you think about, um, I, I frequently question if, if we were to take like these five strategies, right? We just go one over N, give them equal weight. Over time, right? You're going to basically scale trade the equity curve of each of them, right? You're going to be buying into them when, into dips and, and maybe, you know, selling out of them at highs, but that, that's going to smooth out your P&L across the five strategies. But that may be a, a naive way of doing it, but maybe over the long term, maybe it's a better way versus your judgment. Because this is a, a judgment call at the end of the day. I'm just curious how you think about it a little bit more in depthly. We wrestle with that constantly. And that's one of the better questions I probably ever have had, which is, you know, is it better to have just be long spy, double long spy? Um, is it better to just have some giant risk reversal on and go to sleep for a year? Um, the answer is always going to be clouded by what's just happened. You know, if you just take the last 12 months and you, you're out of sample would be the pandemic. And then you would say, well, clearly the, the number one thing you should have done is just sold a zillion puts and bought a zillion calls and just turned your computer off. Since you don't have that information going forward, we don't know what's going to happen with VIX expiration on Wednesday. We don't know what's going to happen with FOMC. We don't know what's going to happen with monthly you know, SPX expiration and all of these things that work against you. you know. So going back, would it have just been better to just buy a zillion index things and let them go up? Probably yes. But what you don't see is the alternatives. The Monte Carlo simulation on all these different ideas. What happens if we did go back down? What happens if we didn't do anything? What happens if we round, rebounded a little bit and then just kind of went flat for a while? We can make money in all of those environments. It turns out the best trade would have been to just you know buy the Qs or buy Apple or Tesla or buy AMC for that matter, or buy GME or buy Bitcoin. There are a lot of things that we know worked, but the problem is since none of us can tell the future, we don't know what's going to work. So what we do is we look at the math and we try to exercise our best judgment in concert with that math to give us an edge, which is a little bit cliche, but it's really what we do. And back in the day, you used to actually run a prop trading firm where you allocated to individual prop traders. And so I'm sure you've seen it a million times where a specific strategy can actually go out of favor, understandably, for five to 10 years at a time and then come back into favor. So just like you've seen it happen over and over. So it's just like they can go really long stretches with being out of favor. Totally. I mean, look at... Gold. I remember my, my, my last day at my prop firm. I didn't know it was my last day, but I, I was going to take off the summer. 
And so we have a big whiteboard in the office. And I never do this because I'm not this corny of a person in general, but I went up there and I wrote my number one call for my, my absence, which is buy gold. And um, at the time it was like $490 or whatever else. And, you know, it's because I did that in such a, a memorable, memorable manner for my traders, uh, I got a little bit, a lot of credit for that, you know, because I've made a zillion calls, but the gold one was a little bit sticky because I went out there and really wrote it in giant letters on the whiteboard. Gold didn't do anything for a long time. Lumber didn't do anything for a long time. Look at 2021, lumber went nuts. So if your job is, you know, a 20-year veteran is to trade lumber, it's not necessarily a good, good gig all the time. 2021 was probably a really great time to be a lumber trader or an oil trader. Or maybe you were thinking oil would go negative in 2020. I mean, these types of things have never happened before. So there are so many things that can come in and out of favor. And that goes back to our ensemble. You know, the reason we both like the ensemble approach is because I can't necessarily feed my family for 30 years being a lumber trader or being an oil trader. There's been times where oil does nothing. There's been times where lumber does nothing. And there's times where oil does something. And it's a very good business. And you can make more money trading oil in a year than you could, you know, 12 years as a heart surgeon. But then you wait around to do nothing for another 12 years. It's a very difficult thing to know ahead of time. I think one of the things that's maybe not talked about enough is the actual cash efficiency of using the futures and options market is almost like trend followers then is like, we can almost take a lot of those trades because we're able to cross margin and use much more cash efficiency. So even if they're not making trades for long extended periods of time, when they're able to make trades again, we have a lot of that cross margin ability and that cash efficiency to be able to take those trades opportunistically. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. Yet another excellent point. So when I think a lot of the public hears about options or futures, they think about speculation and some guy blowing out spectacularly. The, the real professionals don't use it to be quite so reckless. What they really do is they use it to be capital efficient. So you can use span mar- margining methodology, whether you be in the CME domain you know, or the SEC CBOE domain, which is not as, not as good, but still pretty good. So what you really do in real life is you, instead of going out and spending you know, uh, $150 per Apple share, you can buy one Apple call for 100 shares and you can be much more capital efficient. Now you have to figure out the theta and all this other stuff, but there are ways to be equally or res- less risky with less money, which is why we do what we do. And if you look at some of the most profitable traders through history, Carl Icahn, Izzy Englander, all these guys were options guys, not because they're extra risky, it's because they can use the capital to their benefit and they can lose less than they would if they were just naive, long, short traders. Exactly. And so let's dive into the strategies. I want to maybe start with the VRP strategy and VRP standing for volatility risk premium, which is semi-analogous to the equity risk premium. But a lot of times people to trade VRP are going to use the VIX calendar spread or they're going to use the intermarket spread between uh, VIX and S&P. What I think is very unique is you are, you're actually pairs trading with the VIX and bonds. So where did you come up with that idea and kind of tell me about the, the linkage there? I came up with the idea, very common sense to you. If you just look at a graph or chart of VXX, what you see is something that just dies all of the time. Everyone who trades volatility has pulled up VXX and if you haven't, do it now. And just look at this thing that just goes whoosh. It just dies every day. And then every now and then it goes up 100%. And if you were short it, you'd blow out. So the dream here is that you want to be short this thing, but you don't want to blow out. So the trick is having an allocation strong enough to it so that you make money, but not so strong where you get ruined because eventually volatility will rise and eventually it will go up. And when it does so, 
it does so quite violently. So you have to try to allocate this. So a lot of people will say, yeah, you need to be short this thing, but you know, if, if you want to stay alive, you can only maybe put 10% of your money or something like that at it. So what we do is we are short volatility in a risk-defined manner. Think about like kind of a ratcheting system where we can make, 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 then we lose a little, make, 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 lose a little, et cetera. So we try to ratchet up our profit by being short volatility, by being long volatility. Specifically, what I mean by that is we're, we're long, further dated out in the VXX or VIX complex, and we're paying money to be a participant in the short volatility trade. Against that, we also sell options to help mitigate some of that theta loss or sometimes vega loss. And then in addition to that, we also pair it off with the bond market. And why do we do that with the bond market? There's some presumption of a negative correlation between stocks and bonds. So if you know, stocks go up, vol goes down. And if stocks go down, you know, bonds go up. It doesn't always work that way quite so simply. So our strategy doesn't work all of the time. But it's a pretty good trade and it's been working for me for a long time. And it's also a trade that is an excellent answer to what do you do when nothing is going on? I kind of came up with the trade in, in earnest in 2017. And that was when nothing was going on. And other trades weren't really making money. And we wanted to short volatility without blowing out. So this was what we came up with. And part of that, I'm glad you actually brought this up about you know, maybe a 10% position, 10% position shorting uh, VIX futures or VXX, because I, I think a lot of people don't realize that that's part of the prudent leverage going back to what we talked about is you're not, nobody that's trading volatility is taking on a full vol position. They're actually deleveraging. That's part of the prudence is actually, you don't want a full position to VIX contracts. And, and that's what people miss a lot of times is even if they're shorting uh, VIX contracts, it's maybe only 10 to 25% of the book and they're looking for a hedge to hedge that out. I would obviously be remiss if I didn't bring up, you know, there's basis risk, right? If I'm trading VIX calendar, at least I have two VIX contracts. If I'm trading VIX and S&P, I'm starting to take some basis risk because they're not perfectly uh, negatively correlated, right? Because it's just variance at the end of the day. And then so I'm taking even more basis risk if I'm hedging with the bonds. I'm curious how you assess that. Like if so, we've been in this negatively correlated environment, but you know, just to, like you said, you could turn off the program if if stocks and bonds became correlated again. Well, that's part of what we what we do to get paid for. So we've created some um, numbers that guide our judgment as to when to tactically allocate or not allocate to this. Uh, we could go into this so deeply and we could, eat, we could eat up three or four hours talking about this trade alone, probably three or four days. There is math that supports when this trade should be more aggressive or less aggressive. That is the summation of you know, my work, which is to say position sizing and timing is completely relevant to this trade. So is it good to short VIX? Again, is it good to buy mittens? I don't know. If it's 95 degrees out, maybe not. If it's good to short VIX, sometimes it's not necessarily good all of, all of the time. The number one thing I guess I want to impress upon anybody who's curious about this trade is it is always risk-defined. I try to shock everything as though it will go to zero or infinity. So if the market goes to zero tomorrow and the VIX goes to infinity, I know what I have on the table. And I know what I can lose or I know what I can make for the most part. And that is the number one thing that keeps me alive and why I've never blown out. Exactly. And, you know, even talking about this trade, when I had to bring up ERP equity risk premium, it makes me almost choke on it because I don't necessarily believe in it. So translating that to VRP volatility risk premium, the question sometimes is, is there a volatility risk premium or are you really just isolating the roll yield in the short VIX contracts? Slowly what you're doing. What you're doing is you're, you're transmuting risk, right? You're taking short-term risk for some kind of a long-term thing. Same thing an insurance company does, right? You know, if you buy an insurance policy, you send them a check for $100 every month. So you spend $1,200 a year. And every now and then they got to send you a check back for, you know, 15 grand. And they figure that 
if there's a snowstorm coming into Chicago and people might get into wrecks there, well, maybe they can hedge it off in Miami where there is no snowstorm, but maybe there's a hurricane there. So they go to Seattle. So what they do is they look at the, you know, the, the global weather pattern in their car insurance policies, and they try to hedge things off. They maybe bump rates in LA and they sink them in Chicago, or they, they rise them in, in Boston and they sink them in Minneapolis. And you, that's kind of the same idea. So Am, have I figured out a, you know, a, a better mousetrap within volatility complex? Am I in, in aggregate smarter than all of the, the vol traders? No, of course not. I'm taking some risk and I'm transmuting it into short-term benefit for myself. But I'm also doing it in such a way that I know my maximum loss and that if I'm wrong, I'm accepting that loss. And then if I want to continue to lose, I have to re-up the trade. I have to keep swinging at the ball. And what I would argue is that if I strike out, I'm going to really look hard at my strategy before I keep swinging. I'm not going to just keep swinging blindly. At some point, the market is telling me that I'm not going to hit this ball. I'm just not going to. So I need to relax, figure out what's wrong. What are we doing wrong? Or what, you know, is this the five standard deviation event that we really can profit from? Or are we just mistaken in our assumptions? And then the second strategy I want to talk about is your vol arb strategy. And once again, typically when people talk about vol arb, a lot of times it's just those futures trades or that intramarket spread between VIX and S&P. But yours is unique once again, in, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is a, a single name strategy where you're using pairs trades between two single names and you're going long and short using options. And, and I'm sure, you know, relative value hedging those out. So tell me a little bit more about that trade. My trading DNA comes from really the Susquehanna school of trading. And it's really just a, an extension of what you do in the pit. So say you walk into a pit and there are 30 names in the pit, you know, Apple Computer, Microsoft, ExxonMobil, and whatever, 27 others. Eventually, what you end up with as a market maker is a book. You have 30 names in your book because you're charged with market making in all of these names. And then at some point, you kind of figure out that, well, I should buy vol in these, you know, 10 names. I should sell vol in these other different 10 names. And the middle 10 names, I have just really no opinion on. That is a Volar book. You don't necessarily know or care if ExxonMobil goes up, but if you do it enough, if you stare at this, the matrix screen of you know falling rain green code, you eventually do start to see information that wasn't readily apparent to you at first. And then you realize that while you don't know if ExxonMobil is going to go up or down, you know ExxonMobil volatility is cheap. And if you can sell that against Chevron, Schlumberger, which is less correlated or something like that, then you can start to make money in less risky fashion. And then if oil in aggregate goes down, that is to say crude, spot crude, then maybe Chevron and mobile will go down by similar percentages and they start to become more highly correlated and the vol gets more and more bid. So of all our book for me, what it really is, is the optionable equity universe. I don't really care if we're trading I'll just look at my book, you know, Wells Fargo, URI, TAL, VIPS, you know, MO, Plug, SO. There's just, there are innumerable names in my book right now. I don't know if those stocks are going to go up or down. I do know that I think their vol is a good buy here. And that's of what I think is vol arb. You try to sell high vol and you try to buy low vol. It is a derivative of a long, short equity book just translated into the volatility space. I wish we all had that Navy SEAL training that they get at Susquehanna or SIG. And then we, like, we've seen the parallax guys that came out of there as well. But I wish it's not even just the, the probability training via Luddick games like poker, but you're also basically getting a philosophy on life is like, you don't care about anything, just making the, making the spread between the two. So is part of that too, on those, on those single names, 
how are you necessarily looking at that ball? Is it solely just, are you just selling, you know, calls and buying, you know, selling calls and buying calls? Are you, are you trading straddles? How are you kind of laying off the risk of that book? Are you trying to make it Delta neutral or are you taking any sort of Delta position? Such a simple question with the, the, the answer sounds like a smart ass answer, which is all of the above. If there is a, a takeover situation, right? Well, say the XYZ is a, p- a p- potential takeover and the calls look really rich, but if it gets taken over, they're not so rich because it's going to go straight up through your, through your short strike and you're going to get wrecked. So in a situation like that, maybe we sell the theorized takeover price because that, that, that price is really high. Uh, so we want to collect that premium and we put some kind of um, distribution around the probability of a deal happening. But because in case we're wrong, maybe we buy a couple more and we do some kind of a ratio call spread to take over in the event of an actual takeover. So we basically think that we don't think the stock's going to get taken over, but if it does, we think it's going to go from, say, 20 to 30. So maybe we sell the 25s and we buy the, you know, the 28s, right? So if it does go to 30, we don't really lose much. And if it doesn't get taken over at all, we don't, we don't lose much either. But if, if we are able to collect some premium from the, the calls that we've stolen, uh, sold in this example, that is just one random example. But the, the real answer is all of the above because the, the term structure... And the volatility surface in different names changes all of the time. There's always some kind of idiosyncratic problem or issue. And the thing about when we are in aggregate long vol, a lot of these names, you also get to make money from things that you never knew were going to happen, like, like a corporate scandal, a pre-announcement, stock gets taken over, CEO is, you know, murdered one of his employees and the stock gets cut in half. You know, I have no idea these things are going to happen, but if I'm not short a zillion puts in the name, it's fine. And it actually works out pretty well for us. So in aggregate, if you just look at our book and you just, you know, var shock the whole thing, we make money. If nothing happens, we lose money. Usually if something happens and we make money again, if a lot happens, fall path is very relevant and totally important to the book. And I would say that this whole notion of, you know, a positively yielding put that that is this magical put that everybody strives to have doesn't exist. I don't have it. I don't know how to create it, but I can take some parts of the marketplace and dissect them in ways that I can make money most of the time. And you referenced when we're talking about this, this vol arb strategy, the idea you said, you know, cheap or overpriced. Once again, you know, how do you, how do we determine that? Are you running a theoretical value and a screener for every stock in the universe? And you're looking for little little kinks and idiosyncratic opportunities or how do you assess that? Yeah. Yeah. We have programs that, you know, that search really everything that's optionable. And we put some scans on it just like everybody else would. Certain market cap, certain liquidity, certain certain amount of open interest. And then just overlay that with gossip amongst my trader friends and some, you know, some common sense. So, you know, we don't trade names that are like $300 million that have no open interest. You know, if you go out and sell puts in that thing, God help you, it's not going to happen. The thing might go to zero and you're wearing it to hard zero. But if there is a, a name that's, you know, got like a $50 billion market cap and there's, you know, 10,000 options trading in a given day, there is a certain presumption of you might lose money in it, but it's not going to be quite so devastating so as to really ruin your performance. And those are the calculated bets that we make. We don't really traffic in really difficult names. And in fairness, I have in the past, and it's been great. <laughs> Some of the best trades I've made have been in really quirky names. But you know, we're trying to be the steward of outside capital, and we want to be exclusively liquid and very predictable as best we can.
And, you know, at the top of this conversation, you referenced that, you know, vol is relatively predictable, but one of the things you mentioned was flows. Would it be like in this strategy, is this a good time to kind of talk about flows where that's where the alarm bells can go off in your screen or where this is outside the bands of what you would consider the theoretical value due to flows. And then you assess it and you're looking at large players or maybe uneconomic players that are buying or selling vol in a certain single name. Yes, all of the above. Flows are much more important to me than fundamentals. I have never met anybody that can reliably look at a, you know, a discounted cash flow statement, figure out a price of XYZ corporation, and then you know, accurately and consistently over years predict that XYZ is going to go down or up or whatever. Any more than statistical luck would, would have you believe. The difference is, is that the non-economic players and the cheaters always come into the options market. So a classic example would be something like a biotech stock, right? Biotech stock has some kind of FDA ruling coming up next week. Guy comes in and buys, you know, 10, 10 zillion out of the money calls. He pays what seems to be a very high volatility. They, they, they clear their, their drug is amazing and, it, you know, it gets approval and the stock goes up 300% in a half a second. Happens all the time. That's why biotech stocks are very difficult to trade because volatility is crazy high. So if you're wrong, you just eat theta every day. And if you're wrong on the other side, the stock will treble or get, you know, go down by 70% before the open. Very difficult to trade. So the options market, I think, is the, the predictive nature of the futures and options market really is manifest in the information that you're getting because of the inherent leverage that are, you get through options. You see a lot of information that you won't get anywhere else. That's why I think flows are so informative because you can glean information. Again, going back to our fictitious biotech stock, guy comes in and buys 10,000 calls as a percentage of what? What is the normal volume? Is it 100? Is it 20,000? And how aggressively is he paying? Does he coming in in one slug? Or is he coming in and you know, agnostically paying whatever in 100 lot increments? There's so many ways this can be cut apart. And based on what you see there, you can probably make a very educated decision. And maybe you sell him a, a 200 calls and you're like, wow, you know what? I was probably wrong. So now what you do is you go out and scramble and buy as much stock as you can. And then you sell him another 400 calls at a much higher price. And then maybe those two things reach some kind of equilibria, some kind of a price discovery where your new volatility assumptions have kind of got to parity with the movement assumptions. And again, money can be made. Great. The third strategy I want to talk about is your dispersion strategy, also known as a short correlation trade. Um, to maybe start with, for people that don't know about dispersion trades, can you start with like the classic two stock index example to, to talk about correlation, uh, you know, short correlation trade? Sure. So two stock index is something like you know Apple and Tesla, right? The dream trade for a dispersion book with Apple and Tesla is you have three things: you have Apple, you have Tesla, and you have an index comprised of Apple and Tesla. So uh, a dispersion trade that works well is that you have short volatility in the index, you have long volatility in both of your names. Or make it even simpler. Say you just have just you have no volatility. You just have Apple goes up 10%, Tesla goes down 10%, index is unchanged. So moving one step forward, we go to the volatility space and you say we are short volatility in the index and we are long volatility in Apple and then also Tesla. So if Apple goes up 10% or 50%, Tesla goes down 50%, you make money being long vol in Tesla, also Apple, and but because the index as a whole has done nothing, you, you, your short volatility collapses into nothing and you collect all of that premium. You make money thrice. That is the simplest way to describe dispersion that I 
somebody described to me probably 20 years ago and kind of stuck with me. What we do is not wholly dissimilar than what I think anybody else does. And frankly, people don't usually tell each other what everybody else does. But when we are in the S&P 500 and we only trade the S&P 500 for liquidity purposes, we go in and we tactically allocate to dispersion as a whole, which is crucial, much more important than it sounds. And we also weight sectors differently, depending on some of our other views and the other information we get from the marketplace. And then we have a lot of scrutiny as to what volatility to buy and then what tenor to sell. So there are you know, a few dozen different parameters that go into any one given execution. And then even the execution itself is relevant. You know, We use pretty sophisticated software to go in and try to get the best price. And we also vol post. So we're not just you know, taking offers and hitting bids to, to get in and out of things. So our friction to get in and out of the marketplace is also very much paid attention to because as somebody who's been a market maker and understands the marketplace, you know, even if your theoretical assumptions are dead accurate, you can still lose money or you, you're, you're, your profit assumptions can be evaporated by execution. There's so many things that can go wrong. And so when we look at everything, which is like, what are we using to execute? How aggressively do we go out there? You know, and if you're not aggressive enough, enough, maybe you miss it. Maybe you're too aggressive and you pay up. All of these things are difficult to know ahead of time. And when you're doing that over the optionable universe, you know, realistically, thousand names, there's just a lot of moving parts. It's a very difficult trade to steal, which is like why I'm happy to talk about it because, you know, good luck ripping it off. It's just, it's almost impossible. And part of the execution risk is also almost like legging risk, right? Like it's easy to sell, to sell index vol, but to put on those individual names may take you some time and you could get, you know, you could be out of balance in the time you're taking to put on those single name trades. So I assume that's part of your execution, right? Like how do you make sure you're getting off equal amounts at all times? So sure, certainly what we do is we, we make programs, we create software that will say, well, if we want to buy 500 straddles in XYZ and we want to sell 500 straddles in SPY, you know, we will do them five lot OCO. So one cancels the other. So if we buy five you know, units of risk in the, this single name, then we, we sell our five units of risk in the index. And if we don't get one or the other, we will have a very small imbalance that we can kind of figure out. But we don't go out there and sell 10,000 strangles in SPY, SPX. And then we go out and we hope to buy you know, 500 strangles in another you know, 20 names. It's not like that at all. We do everything very balanced so that our individual time risk, while it exists, it's fairly de minimis. And once again, are you using delta neutral on either side of the trade or are you using all the tools in the toolkit? Like, are you only doing straddles and strangles or are you putting on individual calls and puts and spreads? In the dispersion trade, we typically trade strangles. And the reason we typically trade strangles is when I sell volatility, I like to take advantage of charm. And as time moves on, the the typical bell curve, put in your mind's eye the shape of a bell curve, right? And have a, a certain amount of fatness. And if nothing happens, the fatness will decrease with time. The delta of your out-of-the-money calls, if nothing happens, will decrease with time. And the rate of change of your out-of-the-money options is steeper. The speed of the trade is different with out-of-the-money options than it is with at-the-money options. So we think that when it comes to selling volatility, strangles is a superior trade than straddles. It doesn't always work out that way, but in general, it does. So what we do is we pick a time slice that we find to be most advantageous. Too long is too boring. Too short is too risky. So we try to do, you know, Goldilocks just right. And we typically traffic, traffic and strangles. And we do that as an ensemble. And we take it off and put it on tactically, depending on what we think the implied correlation is. So we run an implied correlation of the marketplace. And we run a realized correlation. We run an implied correlation. And then we run a, 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 an implied correlation of our book. And to answer your question, 
you know, you can be delta neutral, but you're not. You know, you still want the market to go up or down. And so this whole nonsense of, you know, I'm delta neutral, that's, that's not true at all. You know, you have to have a vague opinion, a delta opinion, or some kind of opinion, because if you have no opinion, you have no business. You know, the only way to have no opinion and have a good business is to be the fastest trader out there and be able to then get out of that trade again. So HFT is a different business, and we don't have to take that, that tangent unless you want to. But that is the only way you're going to risklessly take an opinion, because it is a perfect ARB where you can sell something and buy something like or the same thing at exactly the same time is so rare as to not even be really to, to discuss it. Yeah, it's almost offensive the way we use arbitrage now, like where it's just literally a, a statistical arbitrage. It's not like a arbitrage where in at exact point in time you're taking is a, a riskless trade. Like it just doesn't exist exactly. unless it just does, unless does not H exist. Yeah, unless you're HFT. Yeah. So that the only way to do that is to hire a, an ASIC or FPGA architect. You send it to TSMN, TSMC in Taiwan. You get it back. You stick it on top of a server at Secaucus, Hawkins, you know, or, uh, you know, Cermac or Aurora, and then you are the single fastest trader in the world. If you do that, then you have the discretion to get out of your bad trades instantly before anybody else, and you can keep and internalize your good trades before anybody else, and that is it. Unless you are number one, maybe two, three, there is, you have to have an opinion of some sort, or you have to have market risk. An opinion is a different word, actually. I should correct myself. It's not necessarily an opinion but you have to have risk on. Right, so even though it's a statistical ARB or, or a hedge trade, you're not, taking, you're not having a global macro opinion when we think about an opinion of where you think markets are going to move, but you have to at least take a, a, a potential risk to that trade. Correct. And those risks can manifest in a myriad of ways. You know, there are a lot of risks that are not immediately apparent. You know, if you go out, you know, what's your Vega? Or in these days, you know, you have other things that you can think about and there are, there's just this really long checklist of things that you should go through before you start putting these types of trades on. There are so many reasons this can go wrong. And there's that, those are the reasons that a lot of people that think they can do this can't. Yeah, I think when you hear about a dispersion trade, it sounds really simple. And then the actual hedging in the book is much more difficult than people realize. And once again, yes. as you said, are you Vega hedging? Like, what are you using for metrics for hedging? You know, are death, like, and then you start getting the third order movements. It's like, or moments, it's like, there's a lot of ways to hedge that book where things can go you know, disastrously wrong. Well, let me tell you what, that most people, I didn't articulate this in my mind for over a decade. How do you hedge? That is ultimately the only question that matters. The answer to the question is unknowable because the, 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 the correct answer is you hedge on what the future volatility is going to be. Because if you hedge based on what thinkorswim is spitting, spitting out as your delta, you're looking at the wrong volatility. Are you looking at what's happening right now? What happened five minutes ago, five days ago, or five years ago? All of those numbers are wrong. The only correct answer is you need to hedge on future volatility. And if you can tell me what future volatility is, you have a great business. And that is the problem. And that is also the art part of our business. Because if you think that implied volatility has gone from 30 to 40, where it is now in this theoretical company, then you own a bunch of straddles. Well, do you hedge on a, on a 50 volatility? Do you hedge it on a five volatility? I don't know. And it's very difficult to know. That is the real answer to how to hedge things. You hedge it on an unknowable future volatility because that is the correct hedge ratio. It reminds me, and this is one of my favorite things you actually talk about, is our entire industry has like a Kierkegaardian problem, right? We're driving forward, but we're looking in the, in the rear view mirror. And so there's almost like there's three things we need to consider, right? If we're talking about 
past volatility, you know, might as well throw that out the window. We have present volatility and then future volatility. And most people are using past volatility. And so you're, like I said, that's Kierkegaardian problem where you're fighting the last battle. So I, do you incorporate all three or how do you really think about that? So I, I forgot what movie it was. Some corny Kevin Costner movie from the 80s, maybe 90s. And he's talking to a kid that's in his car. And I put this in my deck because you might even remember the movie. I'm sure some people that are listening will remember the movie. But anyway, he, you know, he's sitting in the car and he's in a dusty, you know, dusty Nevada road or whatever. And you know, he's talking to this passenger and he's like, see that out front of you? That's the future. See, and he looks in the rearview mirror and he says, see that? That's the past. See, the, see what's in the car right now? This is the present. I'm like, God, it's genius. It's, it's so simple, but it's genius. So it, I thought it was so clever. I put it in my pitch deck. You know, what's happening in front of you, you don't know what's going to happen. A tumbleweed can come in front of you. A guy can dive in front of your car. There can be an, uh, an oil spill in front of you. What's happening in the car is you and your passenger and however engaging that conversation is or the music you're listening to, you know, the, the present moment. And then what's in the rearview mirror is what's already happened. So, you know, who, what happened with volatility in the rearview mirror, it can inform some trades. And I do use historical volatility all of the time. I specifically use it to game the game to trade the trader because I know that other people will use different time slices of volatility and as data falls out of sample, they will adjust their opinions and that I can front run those opinions. As I know the data is going to fall out of sample, I know that I know what they're going to do. So if they, if, if, if they're losing a, if they're using a 12 month volatility and then it's 12 months in a day and all of a sudden the volatility goes from some number to some different number, then they necessarily have to buy volatility or buy options or, or buy index, buy risk on, and then you can front run that stuff. So historical volatility can be used to game the game. At the money stuff is what's happening right now, and it's always relevant. The future stuff is the hardest to know. So we do, we do our best with that. Well, and part of what we're talking about is the dispersion trade, like I said, short correlation is I think a perfect example of this is correlations. Everybody always likes to talk about correlations, and I'm asking them, what time slice are you giving me? Correlations oh. are not static. Like, how do, you, how do you figure out correlations over time, too? So like, do you incorporate, like you're saying, like, almost equal amounts past, present, future? Or like, how do you like assess where, when you're building that model? Equal amounts, no, but we do look at all past, past, present, future. We look at the implied correlation of our book, okay? So if things go to plan, what is the, what will we make? What is the implied correlation of our portfolio right now? And what is that saying about the marketplace? Could we have tweaked this stuff? Sure, of course. We look at what is the implied correlation over multiple time slices and how you how do you decay them because volatility you know trades with the root root time right it is not the same so you have to understand what you think will happen if nothing happens and then you have to have some kind of allocation to the unknown unknowns you have to see what is currently happening how much opportunity is is there in this you know even if it's statistically good to sell a 10 cent put it's still a 10 cent put the most you can make is 10 cents. So you can argue, and Susquehanna guys love to do this. They say, well, you know, there's nine cents of edge in there. I'm like, yeah, but there's also career risk. So find your nine cents, find your nine cents somewhere else because that's a very difficult way to live. And then you look at what is the implied correlation of the market, you know, in arrears? Well, over what time slice? 90 days? Nine years? Because that stuff is not that useful, you know, and especially coming out of a pandemic when everything got blown out from a mathematical standpoint, you know, a lot of those numbers are just spurious. Yeah, well, I think that's that's the problem with all numbers. They're spurious, right? That, that that's what we're we're dealing with on a daily basis. Never mind when you said selling that ten cent put. The way I think about it is like, uh, it's more like headline risk, right? Like, unfortunately, we saw a lot in twenty twenty, a lot of headlines, and, and unfortunately, the news media is not very kind to people when it's like a, maybe a a Canadian provincial pension, right? That loses 
you know, a billion dollars and that makes a great headline selling vol, but they were running a hundred billion dollar book, but there's no nuance, you know, to those headlines. So we all have to be semi worried about headline risk in our business. But this is a good time, I think, with the dispersion trade to talk about once again, fashion, right? And an ensemble approach is historically, and, and maybe I'm oversimplifying with the dispersion trade, is it goes in and out of fashion. It happens to be back in vogue now, but there was a few years there where there wasn't a lot of money to be made in dispersion trade. So do you feel like your models always keep it in fashion or how are you attenuating to the target rich environment for a dispersion trade? So do our models always attenuate to what's in fashion? Hard no. Um, I'll give you a specific and real example. Um, we, I ran a dispersion book a long time ago, went well, then it stopped going well and started losing money. We kind of blew it off. Um, we were approached by uh, a guy who ran dispersion at a, in a, di- a different firm. And he basically said something to us like, um, you know, are you guys running dispersion? Are you amenable to running dispersion? I've been doing it at my firm very successfully. And I think I can improve your dispersion trading business. And so we brought him on board. And uh, he did improve the trade. We all agree that the trade was a better trade with his input. And then, but he couldn't make money. So that was a bummer. We were disappointed. Everybody was disappointed. And then he ended up leaving the firm. And the book was still at the firm after his exit. And the book just couldn't lose money for years after that. And, you know, the, the crystallization of this whole idea of fashion really came from, you know, my subconscious gut to my articulate brain, which is to say that, the trade was a fine trade. The way it was structured is, is a good structure. It just, he was pushing up against something that wasn't working and trying to squeeze juice where there was none. Now that the environment has changed a little bit, the juice is flowing. So that is almost the entirety of the point of my business, which is there are times and places for all of these things, lumber, dispersion, soybeans, oil, whatever, equities, because sometimes equities do nothing. And if you have the nimbleness and the tactical ability to kind of know these things, then that is why an ensemble approach is superior. Frankly, I think there's only two reasons that people don't do an ensemble approach. The most sensible one is they don't know how. <laughs> you just, you know, you come out, you spin out of, you know, jump or something like that, and you're the, you know, the soybean guy. That's what you know how to trade. And if you try trading lumber or bonds or Tesla, you're going to get murdered. Because the guys that do that all day, every day for a living are going to take all of your money from you. Conversely, the only other reason you wouldn't do an ensemble trade is because you have the best trade out there. You know, you have either the, the, the fastest hardware in conjunction with the fastest software, and you don't need a better trade because you already have the best trade. So those are really the only two sensible answers I have to why would you not do an ensemble trade? Because you can't or because you already have the, the best trade that exists. Or it's also because the large allocators in our space only want to have people that have very niche strategies and they want them to stick to their knitting. All right. That's, that's the other, it's just like, there's a perverse incentive within the industry as well. But I assume though, with these, these strategies, it's not a light switch. You're not just turning them on or turning them off. Is it, it's a dial mechanism, right? But that's what I'm asking is like, how do you dial them up or down? And is that kind of the art overlay is like, based on your gut feel due to decades of experience, we need to maybe turn down the volume on this strategy for a little while. And then if I see something, I may turn up back up that volume. At the risk of making our conversation boring, you answered the question already. <laughs> um, that's exactly it. You know, there, there is, it's not a binary thing. You know, we scale into and out of things um, based on the information we have in front of us. Like as of right now, um, you know, September 13th at 10.53 a.m. Pacific time, you know, we are actively de-risking. Uh, we are doing this for what we think is good reason. Now, if the market goes up 10% tomorrow, we will have missed opportunity and we will underperform relative to ourselves as a result. I know that. 
did we just turn the light switch off on Friday and just take off our book and go to hard cash across the board? No, we did not. Um, but we have less risk on, which means we can lose less and, and we can make less today than we could have on Friday. And is that based on the opinion on Friday or is that a typical weekend opinion where you're taking down risk over a weekend in general or is it just happened to be this Friday? Just happens to be this Friday. We okay. always carry positions overnight and I'm not afraid of weekends at all. Got it. The next strategy I want to talk about is bond vol arb. And so this is interesting. You're, you're modeling the IV surface on the 10-year and looking for overpriced and, and underpriced opportunistic trades and, and pairing those off. Is that a fair assessment? Yes. So when you are making markets, you have to come up with a theoretical value of the thing. That thing can be you know, a spoon. It could be an option. It can be a car. It can be a house plant. It can just be a widget. Okay. So if your widget has a dollar, a value of a dollar, the presumption is that you'd like to buy it for less than a dollar and sell it for more than a dollar. But the hardest part is coming up with a good theo, a theoretical value. So what we do within the bond space, the 10-year note space more specifically, is we come up with our own theos. And then we look at past data and current flows. And we come up with pricing on, call it at the money straddles across the term structure, the vol surface. So Sometimes this is confusing because I'm not talking about the yield curve, which is to say, you know, twos to the ultra bond and then, you know, some kind of shape on the yield surface. I'm not talking about that. I am talking about the volatility surface within the 10-year note options at the CME. So ZN option pricing between, you know, the various weeks. Now, these things are priced in weeks, not, you know, they're not serials like they are in the equity space. And they price in ticks, not dollars. So if you say that 10 days from now, straddle is uh, 12 ticks, then you have to have a, an idea. I don't know, what is 12 ticks? Is that, is that cheap or is that expensive? Well, what's happening between now and then? Is there, is there a FOMC uh, announcement? Is there a jobs number? And is 12 ticks a good price or a bad price? Well, the, the, the number one answer is always, I don't know. But we, when you stare at this stuff again, again, going back to the matrix, then you see the stuff falling off the screen. You start to see that in general, options overpriced stuff in there. You know, we can usually buy volatility you know, in some tenor and we can sell volatility in a different tenor. And it's kind of a calendarized straddle swap. Absolute variance is the ultimate outcome. And what we're doing is we're looking at the implied volatility surface within a 10-year note. And then we are overlaying that with our own volatility surface. So what you often get are two lines that are, sit on top of each other and look invisible because they're exactly the same. But every now and then, those two things are not exactly the same. And there's a, a kink above and there's a valley below. We buy valleys and we smash kinks. That's it. Great way of putting it. Getting to it is a little harder. But ultimately, the job is you know, squishing down things with options and buying things up with other different options. Well, that's my favorite part is like you make it sound so easy, but it's, it's, like, it's like a duck on the surface. Like your ability to explain things is so good, but your, your, your feet are churning beneath the surface with all the, uh, the nuance. The fifth category I want to talk about, the fifth trade is macro bets, right? Now, is that purposely vague? So that way it allows you a, a wide swath or, or latitude on being able to take a lot of uh, a lot of bets, no matter what you kind of see in the markets. But once again, is it not philosophically taking macro bets? It's more about looking across the entire global macro landscape for um, opportunistic uh, price discrepancies. So the macro, macro trade is funny. Um, the macro trade sells a lot with the public, but my opinion, Howard Marks recently did a piece on, on macro that I want to kind of borrow from his language. And he basically says that 
he doesn't know that many people that have ever made money from macro consistently. And I agree with that. And while macro being right, macro does drive a huge portion of P&L. The problem with predicting macro is that you're either in consensus and it's already priced in or you're out of consensus and you have some percentage of being right and some percentage of being wrong. And in aggregate, to get these things to be out of consensus and right a lot over years, I don't know anybody that does that. You know, to say that I think the jobs number is going to come in at 750. Oh, whoops, it came in at 325. You know, so what? You know, that's that's not really all that actionable. And if, you know, if if Biden called me up ahead of time and said, okay, guess what? The jobs are going to miss. We're going to be off by 500 grand. What do you want to do? You can trade the market right now. You want to buy some straddles, sell some straddles. My answer is still, I don't know, because I don't know exactly what the marketplace is going to do. So even if I had magical, non-legal information ahead of time for most of these macro events, I still find them to be untradeable consistently. You know, it has to be so wildly out of consensus. So as to make money consistently, you have to have a very out of very unlikely bet. You know, yeah, okay, fine. The the jobs are supposed to be plus two million, they come in negative 10 million. Your long volatility, you're gonna make some money. Great. Putting that bet on for 10 years is gonna lose you money nine years and eleven months. So it's just a very difficult trade to consistently make. However, what I mean by macro is that there are times where rates are obviously doing something or they're being telegraphed to do something. Rates are going up, poof, says, you know, Biden and Powell and Yellen and everybody else, right? Does it make sense to have on, you know, a utilities book that reflects that, a Goldman Sachs position that, that reflects that, a JP Morgan position that reflects that, a real estate position that reflects that? Yeah. Does it make sense to fight the Fed? Generally speaking, no. And if you can have an awareness of what's going on within the macro universe and its variance, it's sometimes easier to just go with the flow in that regard. So again, if rates are going up, you can weight your dispersion book accordingly. You can you know, sometimes put asymmetry in your volatility bets within the, the ZN or the bond, the bond complex. You can do a lot of things once you understand that the forces that be are headed in a certain direction. And while they may wiggle around that direction a little bit, they are in general moving in a certain pace. Specifically rates is what I'm talking about. Because ultimately, what why you care about CPI and PPI and PCE and the JOLTS number and the jobs number, all this stuff is trying to tell you where rates are going to go. And the rates are the price of money. And then you can come up with some kind of dispersion between rates you know, and you know, Tesla because you know, they're, 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 their corporate debt is junkish. You know, all this stuff. So having an opinion on rates or macro environment or rates in other countries and the relative inflation and deflation amongst currencies can inform the rest of your book. And it can allow you to take easier bets. And, and, and even moreover, fighting that for no reason can also be deleterious to your book. Yeah, it makes me, th- I, that's why I figured you weren't making general macro prognostications due to your general agnosticism. And I always think about a lot of the the macro guys, they're basically buying, you know, leap options and you're going to lose money for a long time and then they might be right. But hopefully they have a dispersed book of leap options is basically based on their own discretionary prognostications. But is it, is it a fair way to think about it is like you're you're looking once we're looking at this time slicing again, you're looking at what's going on in the present, you know, rates are going up or whatever rates are going down. 
And then you're basically maybe looking for the secondary or tertiary effects of that. And if you can see mispricings there, then you feel that's an that's a that's a good risk reward trade. Exactly. That's exactly it. So do I think rates are gonna go to, you know, two or to zero? No idea. Um but, you know, like something I, I put a piece out uh, and I, I write very little because I, I tend to keep my ideas inside and then uh, I, it's not that I'm not sharing them. I just don't even think to share them. But, you know, we were looking at the wholesale Mannheim car prices because we know that, you know, Mannheim is wholesale and, you know, you walk into your local Ford dealer, well, that's retail. And we knew that, you know, it had reached multiple standard deviations above its the used car trading prices at Mannheim were very high. And we kind of picked that as an inflection point. And I publicly put out a piece on my website saying that we don't think that bonds are a bad look here based on the fact that we think that this part of the transit, the transitory narrative of inflation will probably come down. We don't think that used car prices will go through new car prices for any more than a spurious amount of time. So if you want to go out and buy yourself a new car, does it make any more sense to buy a new car for 50 grand or a used car for 55 grand? Well, that doesn't make any sense. So it was getting to be where it was getting to not make sense. So we decided that, you know, using Mannheim and other ideas as kind of the data backdrop, that that portion of the CPI was probably transitory. And do we think we're going to get 12 or 14% inflation year over year? Probably not. Yeah. Could you take that time slice from that CPI, move it forward and annualize it and say that we're going to get a 14% inflation? Sure. You can make a math case for that, but Common sense says that's probably not the case, that there is some pent-up demand. And yes, you can say there is inflation. Maybe some percentage of that inflation is sticky. Maybe some other different percentage of that inflation is going to kind of bait, and you call that disinflation. What the exact mix is, I don't know. But because of that, we made some decisions in bonds. Got it. And so we, we've referenced both of us are dubious of back tests. And then if we think about VIX trading, volatility trading, options trading, right, you can't, I mean, these markets are fairly nascent in the long history of markets. And so a lot of people want like these 100-year back tests or et cetera. That's like impossible to do with volatility surfaces. But one question I kind of always have for my vol traders is that, you know, none of them, you know, people can't see your face. You know, you're, you're a handsome young guy. And so you, with right. vast experience. And so no, none of these traders have really been around. We're around the 1970s. And quite frankly, there weren't like, you know, options markets. So what do you think happens in a stagflation or inflationary environment when correlations may be going out of whack for the entire history of a lot of traders' experience. Like nobody really know, has traded through that, through that uh, event uh, risk before. So this is, a, this is a relevant question to my life. So I'm 52 years old. And what that means is I've been trading for, call it 25 years. And over that period of time, I've met countless guys that are smart and get a job at XYZ trading, prop trading firm in Chicago or New York. And that guy's job is to sell straddles in spy or you know tesla or whatever else and he looks like a genius for three years and he's up 200 percent doing this trade at you know xyz prop trading firm and then one day poof he's out of a job and that is what trader education is all about and some of the most expensive education you're going to get so but it cuts the other way so sometimes if you are a grizzled old veteran you don't know to sell a bunch of straddles in xyz and it is a great trade for three years and you could have made 200%. And if you just would have sold as many puts as you could be mathematically allowed to sell, that was a, that was a great trade. The best answer to that is a blend, in my opinion. If you just recklessly do things that are working, the assumption that they're going to work until you're old and gray is naive. 
Conversely, if you use your currently old and gray hair as a way to guide and make you cautious of everything all the time, you're so afraid so as to never make any money and you underperform. So the perfect balance in my mind is how do you make money as a percentage of unit of risk and consistently? And most importantly, don't lose money because we all know that drawdowns are more deleterious to a book than gains are beneficial. So that is a very important thing. And a lot of guys, they, they spin out of a prop firm. They've never really traded their own money. And I think that trading your own money is the single best way to get good at trading because you will never care about somebody else's money as your own. And that's almost a hard stop on that concept because there is nothing like being in there for yourself and you don't have a plan B. All of your money is in this business. And that's how my life has been for you know, 20 years. So, I mean, I've had 95% of my entire net worth in my firm. So, I mean, other than, you know, you know, a house car and, you know, maybe some goof around expenses, the rest of it is, is busy trading straddles or selling puts or something. So that's it. You know, that's how I think you really get the best education. And then you also internalize IP or ideas from other people that you meet, that you hire or something like that. You know, a guy comes in and you know, I, I worked at the CBOE. And so there's, it's nothing but traders. It's, it's a tower of traders. Guy comes in and says, you know, hey, I'm a great cotton trader. I'm a, you know, excellent Tesla trader. And then, you know, he comes in and shows you what he's doing. And maybe he makes a bunch of money. Maybe he gets fired. But eventually you learn what he did right or what he did wrong. That's my, my favorite part of, of Chicago pit traders and the guys that come out of Chicago is that very thing, thing skin in the game, right? That That's the, that's the sharp stick at your back always. And that's why I always like the guys that come out of Chicago, uh, for better or for worse, like, like you referenced earlier in the conversation, you know, this guy's buying a, a house and a car cash, but then the next day they might be turning in those keys to both their house and their car. I mean, you saw that a lot back in Chicago in the day. Um, oh, yeah. But I'm curious, like, we think too much alike about a lot of things. So hopefully you'll think differently about this is like, you know, take a 70 style stagflation. You know, there's people that said in an inflationary environment, you may have a sustained higher vol environment. The curve may go into backwardation. So then you actually have a tailwind to being long vol. To me, that's just one data point. So I'm, I'm not too certain. I don't agree with that at all. Um, if you are sitting at Thanksgiving dinner at your mom's house and you're having you know, turkey dinner with your family and some stranger walks up to you and punches you in the head, your vol is going straight up. You are shocked by this and you've gone from a state of you know, contango to hard backwardation in terms of your you know, alertness. You just had, something just happened to you that you were not expecting. Now you stand up and you turn around and you realize that you're in a fight. Necessarily, your vol goes down because now you know you're in a fight. You're more prepared for punch number two than you were punch number one. So even if we go into a stagflationary event where gold goes to 4,000 and steady state of volatility is higher, I would argue that the back end of the curve, always in forward, you know, moving it forward, say 12 months or six months, will, might be a steady state higher, kind of like it is now. If you look at the, you know, the further dated futures, they're in the mid-20s. Um, that is a higher vol, relatively speaking. But once you know you have a problem, it's only really the initial shock that freaks you out. And then once you know you're in a fist fight, you're now at a new steady state of fighting. And your volatility curve, while your steady state of vol is high because you're in a fight, but your curve has still gone back into contango because you know this fight is going to end at some point with either you losing or he, or he loses. Yeah, it was shocking to get punched in the head at your mom's house, but now that you know this is the situation, you're doing your best to figure it out and win the fight, which necessarily means that you've re-engaged with your volatility and your front volatility is coming back down relative to the back volatility. 
That is one of the best analogies I've ever heard, and I'm definitely stealing that one. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I love that. So, you know, thinking about, you know, what I like is you're, you're using your core competency to put on these five trades and use an ensemble approach, but you're also a, a polymath with a lot of experience. So if you were to combine this ensemble of five trades, is there other things you would combine it with? Like a lot of times, you know, sometimes they're going to be uncorrelated to long equity beta. But what I always find is traders have a really hard time being buy and hold long equity beta, especially due to the negative skew. But like sometimes it's it's a nice uncorrelated trade to the rest of your book. So do you think these are their, your five trades and you're sticking to your knitting? Or how would you combine it in an overarching portfolio with with potential other trades? You know, again, uh, this is going to make things boring, but I agree with you. Um, I am, it's hard for me to buy and hold things. I've seen it work for long periods of time. And, you know, if I just would have, I was going to say, if I just would have bought SPY when I started trading, I'd probably have been better off, but that's definitely not the case. Um, and that actually probably takes us back to the very first seconds of this conversation, which is why do we do what we do? Because it's on balance better. But I do think that being long beta in an environment where the government is doing what they're doing and interest rates are where they are, isn't really a bad trade. And if you can do that in concert with volatility and you can take the main line up of SPY or you know index in aggregate, and then you could also make money within the vol complex around it, you can outperform. Um, I don't think it's out of compliance to say that I've outperformed this year, even with the market up where it is. And the reason is because of our volatility strategies. And not only has our performance been better than the marketplace, it has been better with a higher sharp ratio and with a different risk profile than if the market had done something wholly different. And that's why I think that while it's more work, it's more reward to do what we do than just, you know, going out and buying SSO or some other, you know, 2x leverage or 3x levered, you know, spy thing. And in fairness, if you had SSO, you'd be up 40% this year. So maybe that's not a bad trade. But my point is you can't do that all the time, right? Because if the market was down 20%, you know, you'd be down 40% plus fees. So that's also very risky. And our goal is to try to make as much money as possible risk adjusted. And the, the answer has been for many years that we have been able to accomplish that. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention this anecdote because I think about skin in the game and the battle scars and what experience can teach us. But you were short airline puts going into 9-11. Like that had to be an insane feeling and a one-off event that you could not replicate when those markets closed. Yeah, so um, I've actually never posted anything on you know, any social media about 9-11 until you know, two days ago. I put it on my LinkedIn page. I just told a quick little story about um, my personal experience with 9-11. And I didn't really go into much detail because it, you know, it's not, that's not the point. But um, Goldman Sachs had invited me out to the U.S. Open, which is in Flushing Meadows. And uh, for the you know, tennis tournament in 2001, in September 2001, and I had met a friend at the top of the World Trade Center for brunch uh, on September 10th, and because I was flying out that evening. So uh, I was there, and I talked to people that Oppenheimer was a firm that we did a lot of business with at that time, and they had a clear view right out the window at the towers. And I knew people at Cantor, and I knew people that innumerable crazy stories. We were short a bunch of volatility going into that event, and um, you know, it was horrific, it was terrible, and uh, you know, the market was nuts. So that morning, I woke up. And, um, or not, I didn't wake up. I wake up well before the market, but I turned on CNBC at home and there was a office fire 
that I remember this very clearly because that was what was reported. And I'm like, okay, well, that, you know, it's probably a bad thing for everybody, but, you know, office fires happen. What are you going to do? Got in my car, went to work. And um, the second plane hit while I was at work. And, you know, we are at the exchange, which is, you know, clearly a target. And we're, you know, two and a half blocks from the Sears Tower in Chicago. And I said to all my guys, I'm like, listen, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Um, it, you know, we don't know if there's, you know, two planes or 2,000 planes that are, are going to strike everything that matters in our country. So uh, everybody went home and um, I did what I had to do. And then we figured out the market wasn't going to open. So there's nothing to do. So I got my car and left. And on the radio, um, on the way home, they said that one of the towers had collapsed. And I had already known about the, um, the plane that hit the, the Empire State Building in 1945 due to fog. And I knew that the structural aspect of the, the architecture of that, that the architecture of the World Trade Centers is different than the architecture of the Empire State Building. Empire State Building was relatively unscathed. And my mind kind of repelled the idea that the building could fall. I was very shocked. And um, so I also knew our book. I knew that it was gonna, we were going to lose a lot of money. And I didn't know if we were blown out. And I didn't know what was going to happen. And um, that was really it. And we figured out the market wasn't going to open for another week. And at that point, we didn't know if we were going to be in business. Because if these airlines all went to zero, that could have been the end of my business. And uh, we were down probably north of 30%. Again, this is a prop book, so we weren't running outside money, so it didn't really matter to us to keep an, you know, a moving number in our head. All that really matters is what's in your bank account and what you can trade with. But we were down a bunch, and you also have a haircut number, right? So if they have to liquidate it at crazy numbers, then these things can get even worse at the worst point. Takeaway is that you know, the, the trading was so good, and there was so much business to be done. We had made the losses back 30, 45 days. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I have, what I have in my head is November, and we ended up making money in 2001, despite you know riding Enron to zero and a couple other things that were just nuts. And um, that's it, you know. So that there's a cliche on that, you know. There was a plot line within the, the the TV show Billions about you know Bobby Axelrod doing that, the fictitious character. And you know, I'm sitting there watching this. I'm like, that was me, you know. This plot line that has become lore was me. And I wasn't just short like 20 puts. We were short thousands of these things, you know, many tens of thousands across the board. And because the, the prices are so good. So what they don't tell you is why were we short these things? Because we thought they were a good trade. You know, if you, if you see UAL and AMR, that was the ticker symbol for American Airlines at the time, you know, they're typically like a 25 vol name. And we're selling volatility at 30, 40, 50, 60, 80, 90. Like, whoa, maybe we should stop selling these things. Something is going to happen. We had no idea there was going to be a, a, a huge attack. And that's why we lost a lot of money. But at the, on the back end of that, going back to our volatility thing, there was so much uncertainty. Would there be another attack? Would, would there be a nuclear war? Would there be all of these things? Were we going to invade Afghanistan? Were we going to invade whoever we were going to in, invade? The volatility had expanded so much, and the tolerances and the bid-offer spreads were so wide, we were able to make money without really having much of an opinion on the marketplace as a whole, because of the trading. The trading was so good, we could make back all of that loss and then some. Thank you for sharing that story. I know it's always semi, semi-difficult stories to tell. The other one I always liked is Roy Niederhofer told me the anecdote that um, in 9-11, he was, um, car trading was a lot of his counterparty and they had an office in the World Trade Center. But this goes back to why we said we love futures and love Chicago guys. 
is the Chicago head office said, we will honor any of your positions. You just tell us what they were. Like, and so I always, I always like that story because it goes back to those pit traders where like your word is your bond. But in general, I just want to thank you for coming on this special volatility series and especially talking about your unique ensemble approach uh, to trading volatility. And uh, always appreciate it. It's such a great conversation. And with that, I'll hand it back to Niels. Thanks so much, Jason and Noel, for a great conversation. I really enjoyed hearing about how you can use an ensemble approach to the volatility space and how you can trade volatility in the way we see people in the long-short equity space or even merger arbitrage space do it, as I hope you did as well. And if you enjoyed it as much as I did, make sure you go and follow Noel's and Jason's work. As you can tell from today's conversation, there are many exciting facets to volatility and we really look forward to exploring many more of them as our series continue. From Jason and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode as our journey into the world of volatility continues. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.